you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them this morning to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and as you're turning there, let me just say as a pastor, I am so thankful um, to have a worship team that um, works so hard to get out of the way so that we would see and savor Jesus Christ every week. Aren't you thankful for that? Um, I know that Thursday nights when they rehearse, it's less like rehearsal and more like worship to them, and it shows on Sunday mornings, and I'm just so thankful for that, and the songs that we sing, and how they put all of the focus, all of the attention on the gospel, on the Trinity, on God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and um, just makes it easier to get up here and do what I do uh, after that. Well, Mark chapter 10, we're continuing to walk through the gospel of Mark together. We have been walking through this book uh, for over, well over a year now, and um, we are uh, just over halfway through. We'll take our time going through this because the Word of God is worth it. And uh, we are continuing to see Jesus train His disciples for the day that He will leave them. He will leave them and leave His mission, His work, to them. And so he has to get them ready. And that's what we see him doing here. Uh, before I go any further, um, obviously, it's the kickoff of Vacation Bible School, in case y'all missed that. This like doesn't go with the scripture reading today. We didn't do this elaborate set <laughs> uh, for what I'm fixing to read, just in case you didn't get that. I, I think that's probably obvious. The Statue of Liberty is in the narthex and... Uh, But uh, we're looking forward to good things this week. Let's read this text together. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. The Bible says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who could be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands 
for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray together. God, we need to know what is in this passage. And God, that will not come through my creativity. It will not come through um, my articulation. God, it will come as you open our ears. Lord, open our ears that we would understand. And God, open our very hearts that it would sink down deep within us. That we would take the truth of the Scriptures. And God, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, for those who are believers, that we would apply this. and We would begin to live this out, not for our own glory, but for yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I don't have time to really go into a whole lot of introduction. Uh, I will use the very first verse as my introduction, and we'll launch off from there. We see in this passage this morning a man coming to Jesus, wanting to know how to be saved. And we look at this and we say, this is a good thing. When's the last time you were out somewhere, out in a public place, and someone ran up to you and said, oh, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? I mean, that doesn't happen to me a whole lot. No, I get the guy at the coffee shop who comes up to me and says, do you smoke because your teeth are yellow? You know, that's what I get. But Jesus gets, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And you would think at the outset, this is a good thing. He's asking the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a good question that everyone should ask. We spend all of our time, a lot of our time, our culture does, asking pointless questions, wrong questions. What did so-and-so wear at the awards ceremony? What is so-and-so's status on their Facebook page? We ask questions like that, and this is the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how can I be right with God? How can I be saved? This is the great question that everyone should ask, and so we think this is a great thing, this man coming. And not only does he ask the right question, but he asks the right question in the right way, seemingly. This is a man who is, we know from putting all of the Gospels together, that he is rich, that he is young, and that he is a ruler. He's the rich young ruler. He has money, he has apparently his health, and he has power, his influence. And here in this society, he runs to Jesus. Now, we don't really understand how rare this would have been. But men of stature, men of power of influence didn't run in that day it just didn't do it and so when this man comes running up to jesus it is a sign of desperation it is a sign of respect not only that but he kneels before jesus they didn't run but they really didn't kneel because to kneel was to show yourself to be inferior And so when this man runs to Jesus and kneels before him, he is saying, I am subordinate to you. He comes seemingly in a right way. He even says to Jesus, good teacher. So this man who is influential in the local synagogue validates Jesus' ministry, validates Jesus' teaching ministry. 
he is one that should be listened to. And so he asked seemingly the right question in the right way. We would expect for Jesus then to launch off into something like, believe in me and you will be saved. We would expect for him to say something like, God loves you and he has sent me, his son, to die in your place. If you would believe in me, you will be saved. But we don't hear Jesus saying that. Instead, what we hear Jesus say to him is quite different. We would expect Jesus to launch into the gospel, but he doesn't. Or does he? And too often in our evangelistic efforts, we are very, very quick to answer the question. But the problem with that is, there's a whole lot of people that don't even know the right question. They don't know what they are really asking. We are quick to tell them that God loves them and He's died for them. And he, if they would believe in Him, they will be, be saved. But the problem with that is that we start with the assumption that they fully understand their position and their condition before God. We assume that they understand that they are sinful and rebellious and will one day answer to a, an infinitely holy God. But in these times, that is a dangerous assumption. We start sometimes in our evangelistic efforts assuming that a person basic, has a basic understanding of the storyline of, the, of the, the Bible. That they understand creation, fall, redemption, restoration. They understand this, but in our day that where morals, where ethics, where right and wrong are becoming more and more left to be determined by the individual, we can't assume that anymore. Most of the time when we meet someone, if we're really honest, who is open to having a spiritual conversation or a conversation about eternal life, if they are interested in having that conversation, we must be honest and admit that a lot of the time they are only interested in it because of what it will do for them. I stood yesterday at the barnyard and heard a man next to me. And I, I think his intentions were good. But I, he, he made a statement and he said, most people just don't have any idea what Jesus can do for them. And while I think there is some truth in that, I think it starts from a wrong position. Jesus is not interested. He didn't come so that He could serve you and meet all of your needs. He did come to serve. But ultimately, He was serving the intention and the purpose and the mission of the Father. And it is ultimately all about worship and glorifying God alone. I mean, let's face it. Have you ever met anyone who was honest and had honestly thought about the subject that wanted to go to hell? I've not. Oh, I've met some people that would, that would say, oh yeah, I can't wait to get to hell. It's going to be a great time. I'm going to party with my friends. Oh, you just think we party here. We're going to really party in hell. But the reality is they've not seriously thought about they have thought about this caricature of hell, but they have not thought about hell. I've never met anyone that honestly wanted to go to hell. I have never met someone that honestly didn't want to go to heaven. 
Most people would say, yes, I want to go to heaven. And if we simply launch out into, well, then believe. Most of them would say, well, if that's what it takes for me not to go to hell and to go to heaven, I can do that. And the issue here is they are not willing to start where Jesus is going to show us that they need to start. They simply want heaven as an add-on to their life. Scripture tells us that even the demons believe and tremble. Belief in and of itself. You may think that I am preaching blasphemy this morning, but belief in and of itself is not enough. There must be also repentance. And we're going to see this. Heaven is not to be simply an add-on. Jesus here... Uh, attempting to answer this question will show us that a person is not ready to be saved until they understand that they are lost. So, with that being introduction, let me give you just a few points this morning in this text. In verse 18, what we must do if we are going to inherit eternal life is we must redefine good. We must redefine what is good. Jesus looks at this man who has ran up to him, knelt before him, and said, Good teacher. And Jesus' response to him is not, Believe in me and you will be saved. His response is, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And this seems out of place, but what in the world is Jesus doing here? Jesus understands that this man is being very casual in his use of the word good. This would have been extremely rare, like running and like kneeling for this man. Also, using the word good to describe another human being would have been rare in that day. They tried very hardly to reserve that word good for God alone. That's why Jesus said, no one's good except God alone. This would have been extremely rare, and Jesus doesn't let him get away with it. The word the man uses is agathos. Agathus. It's where we get our name Agatha. So if your name today is Agatha, it means good. Now, someone may poke you next to you and say, I don't think you're living up to that. You know, I, I just don't know. But that's where we get it. This word literally means, in, in the original language, it means good internally. It means virtuous. It means good to the core. And this man runs up to Jesus. Jesus This may well have been the very first time that they had met. And he runs up to Jesus, kneels before him and says, Virtuous, good to the core, teacher. And that's why Jesus says, Why do you call me good? There was another word that the man could have used. The word kalos. It simply meant to look good on the outside, good in form. But that's not the word he used. He used the word that meant good to the core. Not simply good on the outside, but good all the way through and through. And this is why Jesus asked him, why do you call me good? So what is Jesus doing here? Is Jesus rejecting deity? There have been some that have said that when Jesus says this to this man, no one's good except God alone, that this is proof that Jesus is denying Godhood, that he's not God. Here he denies it. But is that really what he's doing? Not at all. Instead, he is getting to the very root of the young man's problem. This young ruler in the local synagogue is the epitome of the average person today. 
He believes that good is a relative, subjective topic. It is an idea that most people are generally good. You, you, you can go ask as many people as you want today, and most of them will tell you that they're basically good. Imagine doing this today. Imagine leaving this place today and going and knocking on a thousand doors today. Or going and standing at Falls Park in downtown Greenville and, and just asking people. When we were at the beach, we did this thing with our kids. On the very last night we were there, uh, we, we had eaten at all these restaurants and we were trying to figure out what's the best restaurant here. We haven't found it yet. And so we came up with this idea and I said, we're sitting under the tent on the beach. And I said to my kids, I'll give you, this is, you'll probably call DHS on me. But I said, I'll give you 10 cents for every person that you ask What's their favorite restaurant here in Myrtle Beach? And first they said, 10 cents. Come on, Dad, make it 50 cents and we might talk about this thing, you know. And then they started thinking about it. Wait a minute, if we, if we ask 10 people, that's a dollar. If we ask, you know, and they started doing the math. And, and lo and behold, they, they said, well, we'll do it. And we, we said, well, go right out there and take your chairs right out in front of where we are, set them up there, and as people are walking, you know how people walk up and down the beach, just ask them. And so... Here goes my daughter. She's got a piece of paper and a pen. She's the secretary. And Makai's sitting out there, and he's, he's the head researcher, and he would say, excuse me, sir, what's your favorite restaurant here in Myrtle Beach? <laughs> and we started seeing people stop and talk to them, and some would go, oh, you know, I don't know, you know, just act like, you know, who are these children and where are their parents, you know? <laughs> And then we saw, you know, there was, a, there was a couple from England that stopped and talked to them. And we saw this couple that were, they wisely kind of looked over our kid's shoulder and back at us. And they kind of winked at us, you know, that, you know. And the guy comes back to me and he says, it's a pretty good way to do research and development there. You, you got some good laborers there. But in just a matter of a few minutes, they had talked to 70 people. And they earned that day $7 apiece. It's a pretty good way to do it. Is that right? Math? Is my math right on this? Not my strong point. But imagine if you did that today. Imagine if you were to go out today and stand at the park and ask as many people as you possibly could. Maybe you don't get to a thousand. Maybe you just get to 70. How many of those 70 do you think would say to you, no, I'm, I'm a bad person. I'm, I'm rotten to the core. You may, you may say that I'm Kalos, but I'm, I'm not virtuous. I'm not Agathos. I'm not that. How many of you think would say that? No, most of them would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, compared to, to other people out there, yes, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I've never murdered anyone. I've, I've not really stolen anything in my life. I, you know, I, I, I've, I've not, a, not a child abuser or anything like that. I, I, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Most of them would say that. I am good. And that's the idea here. And this is how this man is using the word good, as he is assuming that generally most people are good. And the problem is, God is not grading on the curve. And God is not going to compare your righteousness against the righteousness of other people. Scripture tells us that God is going to compare your righteousness to His. And that's what Scripture is talking about when it says, Be holy as I am holy. 
That's what Romans 3.23 is talking about when it says, For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. The idea here is not how good am I compared to you? Or how good are you compared to me? I mean, you've never paid your kids to talk to strangers. So, you know, you may be pretty good. But that's not the idea. The idea here is where do we stack up against the holiness of God? And so if we're going to even begin to think about inheriting eternal life, we've got to redefine good, that it's not compared to others, but it is the holiness of God that defines what is good. And secondly in this, is after we redefine good, we also must honestly appraise ourselves. This is a quite comical part of this story where Jesus points the man to the second tier of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't go to the first four commandments that deal with humans relating to God. Instead, he goes to the last six, and he goes to the the last six of the Ten Commandments that deal with humans relating to other humans. And he says to this man, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man's response is, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Is that funny to anybody else besides me? Do you know anyone like that? You know there was somebody in the crowd that day that was going, Oh, really? From the time that you were bar mitzvahed, you've kept the law perfectly? Really? From the time you turned 13 years old, you have kept it all? It's Father's Day. Do you think this man's father would have backed his story? I can remember distinctly standing as a child, probably 8, 9, 10 years old, standing next to my dad and, and been out, you know, with him somewhere going to stack hay and all that kind of stuff and whatever. Don't get any ideas. Those of you who are hay farmers, I've given that up. I've retired from that. But I can remember standing there next to my dad and my dad would take his hand and, and, and the man that was there across from him would say something like, pretty good helper you got there. And my dad would take his hand and he would say, yeah, he's a pretty good boy. And he'd stroke my hair. But if I were today to go back home and say to someone there, from the time of my youth, I have kept the law perfectly, my dad would say, you're a liar. (laughs) You have gone to pretty good boy to liar. The reality is that in dealing with the laws that deal with other humans, it is possible to appear to be very moral. To be good. But we forget that it's not other people that we have to convince. Jesus taught that while you may not have committed murder, if you have become angry with your brother, it is the same thing worthy of the same punishment. You may not have committed adultery. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught that if you have lusted after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery with her. point is, we may look pretty good on the outside, but it's really what's in the heart. You see, this man missed really the intent of the law. He saw the law as something that he could do a pretty good job at, 
and convince others that he was right. And he had missed the whole point of the law. The whole point of the law was to show him the condition of his heart before God. How many of you have, and don't raise your hands, don't, don't speak out, but how many of you have struggled with something for years and you think, I just wish that I could put this down. I just wish that I could quit doing this thing. And maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's something else. Look, it is, it, it, the point of that is not for you to say, well, I'm just, I just got to try harder. I mean, I, I just got to read more books. I just got to figure this thing out because there's something in me that I just got to try harder. The point of that is not try harder. The point is you are broken. You are sinful. Not just in your outward actions. And if you could just rehabilitate yourself and clean those up, you'd be right with God. No, you are broken to the core. We've got to honestly evaluate ourselves. Is that while we may not be as bad as someone else from a human standpoint, in the eyes of God without Christ, we are not just guilty of our sin, we are guilty of Adam's sin. We have a nature that is prone to run away from God, not to God. And when this man says, Teacher, from my youth I have kept all these things, I think he is being less than honest. Jesus was going to show him exactly what his other God was. While he might say, I've kept these six that deal with human relationships, Jesus was going to show him that he had, he had broken even the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus was going to show him that even while he was talking to the Son of God, he had another God in his place. If you really want eternal life, you have to be honest about who you really are in light of who he really is. And don't miss the fact that this religious man who claims to have kept all of the law since his youth was the very one who was so desperate that he ran and he knelt and he called him good and he said, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? You see, all of the obedience, all of the law, all of the religion had still left him empty. He was trying to fix himself and it had left him wanting. And so today I ask you, have you ever come to that place where you have been honest with God about who you really are? in light of who He really is? Third, and this is where it gets hard, and this is where some of you will probably check out and leave me. But the third point is this. Part with everything. Part with everything. If you want to inherit eternal life, you must be willing to part with everything. You say, well, He didn't mean everything. He meant, he meant some things. No. Everything. Verses 21 and following, he says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Don't miss that. Loved him. Even while he was a sinner, rebellious, living in a way, trying to fix himself, Jesus loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. 
Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What was the man's response? I will do it. I will sell it all if I can have eternal life. It's not his response. His response is that he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. When it came down to it, the man chose great earthly possessions over treasure in heaven. His other God was wealth. Uh, think about his very name. I thought about this as I was just meditating, contemplating this passage. I was out uh, walking this week and I was just thinking about this. Think about the, the very name that we know him by. We don't know his real name. All we know is that he's the rich young ruler. Think about that. Could his very name be meant to be a picture for us of what we are sometimes tempted to trust in the most? He was rich. Aren't we tempted to trust in our comfort and our wealth and our possessions? Hasn't the present woes with the economy taught us that? He's young. And I know bad health happens to people of all ages, but probably here young also would include that he's a fairly healthy guy. Aren't we tempted to be okay and not need God as long as our health is good? He's ruler. Aren't we tempted to seek after power? And if we can have power and influence, then we can say, God, I don't really need you. And we may not say it outright like that, but we have to admit that these are three areas that we are tempted to trust in over trusting God. These are three potential idols that would love to usurp the throne of God in your life. And Jesus was asking him to go from being a rich young ruler to a poor young nobody. And his age would go away, and so eventually he would be a poor old nobody. And Jesus, the scripture goes on and says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why in the world, when we read this, when Jesus says it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven, why were his disciples amazed at this? Because in that particular culture, they had always assumed that earthly wealth was a sign that God was pleased with that person. This was the favor of God on this person's life. And if a person was wealthy, it meant that they were in right standing with God. And so when Jesus says, how difficult it will be for a rich person to get into heaven, the disciples just kind of gasp and step back. Jesus goes on to then say, not only will it be difficult for a rich person, but it's difficult to get into heaven at all. And this goes back to the picture that we had last week of the infant resting in the arm of Jesus. And Jesus then goes on and he says, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is not making a reference to some gate in Jerusalem. 
there was no gate in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, there was a gate built, and it was named the Eye of the Needle. But not in Jesus' day. It was named that because it came from this story in Scripture. But in Jesus' day, there was no gate. There was the rumor that it's been explained through history that this is talking about, what Jesus is really talking about, is that there was this gate in Jerusalem, and it was just a small gate. And the largest animal in that, in that land of the day, the, the camel, if you got him down on his knees, took all of the gear off of him, and just had him just kind of work his way through there, that he could squeeze through that gate. He could get through the eye of the needle. The problem is, there is no gate. This is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not making a reference to, it's going to be hard, but if you try hard enough, you can get in. If you take enough stuff off of you, you'll get in. What Jesus is instead talking about here is the actual eye of a needle. And Jesus is taking this needle, this small needle with this small eye, which thread. You ever tried to thread a needle? It can be pretty difficult. And he's really pointing to this eye of a real needle, and he's really pointing to the largest animal of the land, and he's saying, it's easier for that camel to go through that eye of that needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. What's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is that it wasn't difficult, but that it was impossible. Does this mean that rich people cannot be saved? No. What Jesus means here is that people who make an idol out of wealth and possessions, it is impossible for them to get into heaven. If they refuse to destroy that idol, they cannot be saved. A person cannot add God to their life. The Bible teaches us that a person must leave their life in order to save it. That's what he was referring to back in chapter 8 of Mark when he said, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We're called to leave our lives, not add Jesus to our lives. Holding on to anything as your own, as untouchable to God, disqualifies you from the grace of God. Two more, and I'll finish up. These will go quick, much quicker than the last. Not only must we redefine good and honestly assess ourselves and part with everything, but then two more, we must trust God. The response of the disciples when they hear this story is, and when they hear these words of Jesus is they step back and they say, then who could be saved? I mean, if this guy can't be saved, if he's honestly blessed of God, he's obviously in right standing with God, look at all his wealth. If he can't be saved, then Who can be saved? And Jesus' words are pointed and they are so comforting. He says to them, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If you are here today and you are trusting in your own works, hoping that you will do enough, be good enough. At the end of your life, everything will sort of weigh out and your good will outweigh your bad. And the reality is, 
with man, with you, it is impossible to enter heaven. But with God, all things are possible. You say, I, I, can't, I can't do this. I, I, I can't part with everything to follow Christ. the grace of God, He will lead you to leave everything and follow Him. So trust God. Trust Him alone. We sang in Christ alone. Trust Him alone. Not your own ability. The last point I'll have you to see today is not only trust God, but be last. Be last. In verses 28 through 31, Peter begins, you got to love Peter, he says, look Jesus, we've, we've left everything to follow you. So, we must be in pretty good shape, right, Jesus? you got to love Peter. And Jesus says to him, Peter, truly I, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. As we trust God in part with everything, we will discover that what we're sacrificing is really no sacrifice at all. And there are many people in this room that would tell you that very thing. That what I thought, what I held on to for so long that I didn't want to give up, that I didn't think I could give up. When I gave it up and I received the kingdom of God through the finished work of Christ alone, I realized that what I was holding on to was rubbish. It was poison. And I thought it was good for me. And if I could have seen it now, like then, like I do now, I would have given it up way before I did. When we trust God, we will find that what we think we are sacrificing is really no sacrifice at all. He says three different ways here that we are blessed. He says, number one, that you'll receive a hundredfold now. And it's interesting in this, on Father's Day, that he says, whoever leaves sisters or brothers or mother or children or father or lands for my sake or for the gospel will receive a hundredfold. And it's interesting that when he goes back through the list of what you will receive in this life, Father's left out. Why? I think it points to the fact that you go from having a God who is fatherly over you just as one of his creatures to him being your literal Father. And you're adopted into the family of God. And you will receive a hundredfold now in this time. Wait a minute, is this prosperity theology? Are you telling us that we should just name it and claim it? Blab it and grab it? Is that what we should do? Well, this is prosperity theology. But it is different prosperity theology than what you see on television. Prosperity Theology on television tells you that you should live for the moment. That God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise right now. 
And if you don't have those things, your faith is just too weak. And you need to increase your faith and you'll have those things. And what Jesus here tells them, though, is if you leave those things now, that you will receive a hundredfold those things now. What's he talking about? He's not talking about that if you would just sow a seed that all the wealth would come back to you. What he's saying is, and many missionaries throughout history could tell you this very thing, that if you would be willing to leave it all for the glory of God and his gospel, for his sake and for the sake of the gospel, that you would find that houses open up to you all around the globe. That you gain brothers and sisters and mothers and lands all around the globe because you come into the family of God. Wow, and there are some of you in this room who coming to Christ, living for Christ, serving Christ, means that your family wants nothing to do with you. You are the oddball at family gatherings. They don't want you to start. And Jesus here says to you, whoever leaves these things for me will receive them now to the church. And then with that, he says, not only will you receive a hundredfold these things now, but you will also receive persecutions with them. And oh, did the early church know about this. And oh, have Christians throughout history known about this. Living for the gospel will include persecution and suffering. Don't buy this lie that says, if you come to Jesus, you can have your best life now. It is a lie from the pit of hell. You'll have a wonderful life that will count for all of eternity, but it may not be the best in the eyes of the world. And then he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. If we're going to discover that sacrificing really is no sacrifice at all, if we're going to discover that we receive a hundredfold now, that we receive persecutions, that we also receive eternal life then, if we're going to get there, then we must also embrace this concept of being last here. One of the books that I read, and that's what he says there in verse 31, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. What in the world is he talking about? Well, one of the books I read at the beach two weeks ago was The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. I've read it before, but I reread it. Great little book. Won't take you very long to read. The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. One of the principles in the book is, he uses scripture to, to show you this, is he says, you can't take anything with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can send it on ahead before you. There are no U-Hauls behind they don't go to the cemetery but you can live your life in such a way now that you say I'm not living for this world I will be last in this world so that in the world to come I will hear my God say well done well done send it on ahead let's pray Lord Jesus, today, your word, the gospel, is so clear. The gospel is not about us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not about us working harder. It's not about us being better. The gospel starts not simply with a desire to go to heaven, but the gospel starts when we see what is really good 
and when we are honest about who we are, and when we part with everything to trust you to do the work, and then we trust you all the way through this life, knowing that you are the one who holds us and you will see us through, that you will persevere in our lives. We need the gospel, God, those of us who are believers, as much today as we have ever needed it. And God, today I pray in this place, Lord, that you would lead. God, that you would lead us where you would have us to go. God, that you would do whatever you want to do. God, that we would praise you in the midst of that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.